Well, it's, it's a real blessing to have Sinclair join us this evening to uh, bring God's Word uh, to us. And uh, his association with Grace Church Leith goes uh, right back to the very beginning, even before the days uh, where we were meeting in our living room. Uh, it was Sinclair's vision, along with those at First Presbyterian Church Columbia, to see a church planted in Scotland. And so we're very grateful uh, to him uh, for all that he has uh, been involved in with that. And um, I'm particularly thankful for his friendship and encouragement over those years and for his prayers for us as a church. And so it's uh, great. And I, I was delighted uh, when, he was, uh, when he agreed to come and uh, share with us uh, this evening. So I'm going to invite Sinclair. I'm going to stop there and uh, invite you forward, Sinclair. I just want to take another minute to see if there's anyone else wearing a tie tonight because I feel that uh, in my younger days I would at least have had the wisdom to say what's the dress code for this occasion. So I, I hope uh, my, my jacket and my tie are not in any way offensive to you. Just a reminder of the good old days. Uh, but it's a delight to be here uh, Athel exaggerates the contribution uh, that I personally have made, but it's been a delight to me to see a number of people from Colombia who've made really a big contribution to the church here and who uh, very much have loved Athel and Rosalind and prayed for this work. And uh, I shouldn't say to Athel that the only reason I'm here is the thought that I might also see some of them as well as seeing him. That's not completely true. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles. You should find one beside you uh, on the chairs if you need it to the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, which you'll find in the, the church Bible on page 903. And I want to read just the closing verses, the third section of this prayer of our Lord Jesus that if you're using the church Bible, you'll notice is actually headed the high priestly prayer. And this is the third section of that prayer, where Jesus, on uh, within a few hours actually of his arrest and trial, and then his crucifixion the next day, is in prayer. And the disciples are with him overhearing his prayer, longest prayer in the New Testament actually. And Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me 
may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Well, any kind of anniversary is an occasion for looking, I think, in three directions. Uh, first, looking back with thanksgiving for however many years that you're celebrating, whether as a married couple or an engaged couple or a courting couple. It might just be a weekly anniversary or uh, for a church like Grace celebrating a 10th anniversary. And it's important also to look around, isn't it? Uh, to sense where God has brought you. And then it's an opportunity to look ahead, to try to sense something of the trajectory on which God has been leading you and on which you believe he will continue to lead you into the future. And I thought it might be helpful for us reflecting on an anniversary to think about these closing verses of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And I want to do so, as those of you who picked up an order of service at the beginning might have noticed under uh, this title, the question the church rarely asks. The question the church rarely asks. Well, what is it? What might it be? The question that's on my mind is, what does the Lord Jesus think about the church? What does the Lord Jesus think about our church? Now, there are two ways of asking that question. You can, you can inflect your voice on almost any sentence you please to make it mean something slightly different. And it would certainly be possible, although I don't think a 10th anniversary is the occasion, to ask that question in a kind of critical frame of mind. Um, to think, for example, of those opening chapters in the book of Revelation, where we learn what Jesus thought about churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And some of the things he thought scarcely bear repeating, because the church was in such a parlous condition, and he saw through the superficial to the real. But that would be a question, I think, for another occasion, and certainly not for a guest to be preaching on. I want to think about that question from a completely different point of view, from what we might think of as a, a hugely encouraging point of view that we, I think we don't think nearly enough about because we don't actually often enough ask the question, well, what does the Lord Jesus think about our church? Or if we do ask that question, it's because we become grungy old men who are 
pretending to be critical of the church because it's not the way it used to be when we were young. And certainly if we're Scottish, we have something of a tendency, don't we, to the negative and the pessimistic, and it would be very easy in our present climate to think that Jesus thinks ill of the church. But what we've got here, I think, probably at the moments of Jesus' most elevated emotional concern for his disciples is an amazing expression of what Jesus thinks about the church, about our church. This passage, as I'm sure you know, is often been described as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's so described in the English Standard Version, not because John tells us this, but because there's a pattern in this prayer that very closely resembles the pattern of Israel's high priest's preparation for the Day of Atonement. It was the high priest's responsibility, first of all, to seek God's face and blessing for himself. And then he moved to uh, another circle of intimate relations, especially those who ministered with him as priests and also members of his own priestly family. And then thirdly, he would move on to pray for all of the people of God. And you'll notice that this is exactly the flow of John 17. First section, he prays for himself, about himself, and the glory that he longs to taste again in the presence of his father. And then he prays at some length about the 11 men who are left in the room with him, that they may be kept and that the Lord would sanctify, consecrate them through his word and use them for his glory. And then he changes gear again. And what is so marvelous about this new gear change is that he prays not only for those who are in the room or even for their contemporaries, but he's actually here. And in a way, this is the only place we sense him doing it. He prays for his own church in the future, in every generation. This, in a sense, is a prayer of Jesus into which we can put our own name as individuals and the name of our own church. Actually, be a very helpful thing for us to do that and to listen to the Lord Jesus praying for Grace Church in Leith. Because, as certainly our spiritual forefathers often said about this passage, it is, in a sense, a transcript of the intercession of the Lord Jesus today in heaven. And if perhaps that's a slight exaggeration, I think it certainly is true that it's a transcript of the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus towards us. And the fascinating thing is, there is not a single word of exhortation in this passage telling us to do anything. But there is such rich reservoir of love in this passage for us, that when we begin to grasp it, our response without an exhortation is in essence to say, 
for what a for what a savior like this, what a savior like this will lead us to. He'll lead us as we've been singing to give him everything we have and everything we are. Because he cares for us and loves us so much. And for some of us, at least as Christians, for us as a church family and fellowship, there is nothing more important than this, than that we should know just how deeply the Lord Jesus loves us and cares for us. Now, I want to try and put my finger into this um, marvelous array of biblical truth and just pull out two strands from the tapestry of Jesus' prayer. The first of them is this. It's the way Jesus describes us. And the second is simple also. It's what Jesus wants for us. The way Jesus describes us and what Jesus wants for us. Now, those two points are really a way of disguising four points. So bear with me as we think about these two points. First of all, how does the Lord Jesus describe us? Well, you'll notice the answer is in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. We are those who believe in the Lord Jesus through their word. Now, when you get old, your eyesight fails, but most of you do not look nearly old enough to have heard the apostles preaching, unless you have discovered the elixir of youth. But you'll notice that's not what Jesus says. He's not saying, I'm praying for those who will believe in me through the apostles' preaching, but through the apostles' word. And I dare say that every single one of us in the room who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a believer in Jesus Christ for one reason only in the last analysis. And that is that we have come to believe in him through the apostles' word. So if we were engaged in a careful study of these chapters in John's gospel, we would be able to fill out what Jesus means when he speaks about us believing through his word. Where do we get this word? Well, he had earlier said to the disciples, when I'm gone from you and I send the spirit to you, the spirit will do the following things. He will bring to your memory everything I've said to you. Second, he will lead you into the truth so that you understand it all. And thirdly, he will show you things to come. Now, I think it would make a, a good little Christian IQ test to ask the question, what do you think that's a description of? Where do you find the things that the apostles remembered Jesus said? Where do you find the truth into which the apostles were led? Where do you find things that are still to come that the Lord Jesus revealed to the apostles? And the answer is, it's in the right-hand side of the book that you're looking at just now. In a way, there is no perfect 
no more perfect description of your New Testament than this. The Gospels. The experience of the apostles and their teaching and their letters. Those sections in the Gospels and in the letters and in the book of Revelation where Jesus shows them the things that are still to come. It's in that sense, and there is no exception to this. No matter how we first of all heard about Jesus Christ, none of us has had any ultimate access to Jesus Christ apart from this New Testament. Outside of the New Testament, we know almost nothing about Jesus Christ. But it's all here in the New Testament. And what Jesus is therefore praying about is like the chain reaction that would take place from the apostles writing the New Testament to people like us in Leith on a Sunday evening in November, gathered as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when you, when you think about that from the point of view of a church anniversary, it's a wonderful thing to reflect on. Our, our spiritual forefathers always emphasized the importance of reflecting on the way in which, in the providence of God, the gospel came to you. And what fruit the gospel bore in you. You know the reason I know Athel? Is because I think to the week, 57 years ago, Yes, 57 years ago, before most of you were actually born, I fell into conversation with his father. Having no idea the links in the chain that that would give me into another generation. And you may have the same story of someone who brought the gospel to you, who read maybe John's gospel. Or you happened on the New Testament. Or you saw the grace of Christ in someone's life. Or you stumbled into a church where Jesus was explained to you. And then you think back through all the different chains that weave their way through history. That brought the gospel from this upper room where Jesus was praying to this landmass, to this family to this person, the ways in which the, the links in the chain were often hidden, but eventually they have come to you and you have been brought into that great chain of God's grace and the answers to Jesus' prayer. And we can say the same about our church, that this is what Jesus was praying for in our church. Friends, we are those who have come to believe because of the apostles' word. And if we ever were to be discouraged, we just need to remember that this word has come to us out of an upper room in Jerusalem through only 11 men. To think that he was praying forwards, that that chain of the links of his grace the links of his people who would carry the word of the gospel. Um, I could probably keep you here for the rest of the night, but mustn't with 
stories about those who were links in the chain in unusual ways that brought me as a young teenager to faith in Jesus Christ. And you have a similar story. We are those who in Jesus' eyes, we are those who came to believe in him through the apostles' word. No wonder he spent so much time caring for them in all their frailties. But there's something here I think that is, at least to me, is, is more touching. And that's the way he describes us in verse 24. Father, he says, now he's, he's praying for them, for us. Father, I desire that they also, not just the apostles, but those who come to faith through the apostles' witness, that they also, whom you have given me. I hope you think about yourself that way as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are someone the Father has given to his Son. You are someone the Father has so prized in his amazing love, his undeserving love for you, that he has put his hand on you and given you to his son and said, now my son, the plan is that you will go and die on the cross for him, for her. That I will raise you and when you return to me, we will continue to care for them. We will look down the corridors of history. We will fill in the links and the chain and we will bring them to ourselves. You could think of few ways in which your sense of privilege and dignity could be more clearly enhanced than to think about yourself as, I am someone the Heavenly Father gave in his love to his Son. And the striking thing about that is, it, it's not something that makes you and me or this church important, is it? Um, the things we pass on to others to keep are not necessarily the things that are most expensive, but the things that we cherish. Um, you know, when you get to my age, what you like to watch on television is murder on the one hand and the repair shop on the other. And I know the repair shop isn't for you if you're in your 20s because everybody ends up in the repair shop in tears. Why? Because they've brought in something someone has given to them in love and it's in ruins. And these practical geniuses in the repair shop put these things together. They deconstruct them. They reconstruct them. And if you watch the repair shop, then, I mean, it, it's like a it's like one of those movies, you know how it's going to end. It's going to end in tears, and it usually does. Tears of appreciation and gratitude. And many of the things are virtually worthless. So wherein lies their value? It lies in the love of the person who gave it to them. And what the Heavenly Father has said about you and about this church is, my son, I'm giving her to you to die for, to care for, to pray for, 
and to love forever. I don't know about you. I, I have kept one or two things that people have given to me. Right? I've kept one thing that is totally worthless. Totally worthless. Insignificant. I could actually have it on my person tonight and you wouldn't know I had it. And the reason I keep it is because a member of the royal family gave it to me. That's the only reason. It's totally worthless. The member of the royal family knew it was worthless. But I keep it because of who gave it to me. Don't you think that Jesus thinks that way about you because of the fact you're a gift from the Father to him? Perhaps it's something your parents gave to you. The value of what we possess, if we have any sense, has got nothing to do with the financial value of the thing. It's connected to whose DNA has been put onto it. And what Jesus is praying about is the fact that the Father's DNA, the DNA of the hand of the Father has been on you and he's given you to his son. And what I find very interesting is there are a couple of occasions earlier on in John's gospel where Jesus uses this expression, though as the Father has given to me. But there's an acceleration of its use here in chapter 17. It's there in verse 2 and it's there again in verse 6 twice and it's there again in verse 9 and it's there again just down the page in verse 11, and it's there again in verse 12, and it's here now in verse 24. You might say this is Jesus' favorite way of describing you if you're a believer, that you are someone his heavenly Father gave to him. And because his heavenly Father gave you to him, he will never let you go. And we say, but I am nothing. But that's the point. That's what makes it such a glorious thing to be a Christian, that in and of yourself you are nothing. In fact, in and of yourself you've been a rebel against God. But he has manifested such love for you. A love he has had for you from before the beginning of time that will never end because it never had a point in time when it had to begin. And he said to his son, son, they're yours now. Now save them, keep them. So that's how the Lord Jesus thinks about us. And we do need to lift our eyes upwards to him, don't we? Because we're so prone to, I know I'm so prone to, I am nothing, I have failed. And you get to an age where the failure could crush you to death. Failed so many people, failed in so many ways. Um, you, most of you never preach, and so you don't know what it's like to be a preacher who just wants to die at the end of his sermons because he's so conscious he's failed again. He, he can't do it the way he wants to do it for the Lord Jesus. So we're nothing in ourselves. 
As a church, we're nothing in ourselves. It's all foolishness to the world. But the thing that makes all the difference in the world is that we know that the Father has given us to his Son. And his Son will never, ever let us go. And that leads me to the second thing. The first is the way the Lord Jesus describes us. And then the second is what the Lord Jesus wants for us. What the Lord Jesus wants for us. He's praying for us, as we see in verse 20. I don't ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What does he want for us? Well, he tells us what he wants for us, first of all, in the here and now. You notice that, don't you? Um, he prays in verse 21 that we will all be one. And it's clear he's not speaking about some kind of institutional unity here. You can have institutional, I mean, think about the political parties. They've got institutional unity and rampant disunity within. Not speaking about governmental unity or institutional unity. In fact, the model he uses is mind-bending. He says, I want them to be one, Father, the way you and I are one. The way you are and I are one. A unity of the deepest personal fellowship. Now, if you... If, there are so many layers in John's Gospel. If you want to understand what Jesus is saying there the way you and I are one, Father, you need to go right back to the very first words of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, which is a description of the Lord Jesus. And John says the Word was with God. And the language he uses, some of the scholars like to retranslate it, the Word was face to face with God. Um, me, I do not like another man looking into my wife's eyes the way I look into my wife's eyes. Me as a minister, the, 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 the moment I felt most I wish I weren't here at was when at the end of a service, as one has become bound to do when a couple are married, you make this great declaration, which the guy has been waiting all through the service, you may now kiss your bride. Who gets the best view of that kiss? It's the minister. He's only three feet away. He can hear it. Never mind, see it. And I was trying to avert my eyes because this is a moment of such intimacy. I don't really belong here. And that's how it is in the relationship between the father and the son face to face. The son looking into the eyes of his father, the father looking into the eyes of his son. And Jesus is now praying that it will be like that for us. Now, how is that possible? Well, actually, he's already explained earlier on in John's gospel. Um, when he told the disciples, I know the fact that I'm going from you is breaking your hearts. But listen, when I go from you, I'll send the Spirit to you. And he will make your hearts 
home for me and for my father. You'll find that in John chapter 14. Now, here's the point. When Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, that must mean, mustn't it, that there are actually two Holy Spirits. The Spirit that was on Jesus throughout his ministry, and then this Spirit that he sends. It must be a different Spirit. No, it's not a different Spirit. The Spirit who comes to dwell in believers is one and the same Spirit who dwelt in the Lord Jesus and was the bond of his fellowship with his heavenly Father. Or I can put it another way. I don't know how many are there in this room. Let's say there are 90 or 100 people in this room. And let's say, just for the sake of thinking about it, that we're all Christians and we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Does that mean there are 100 Holy Spirits in this room? There's only one Holy Spirit. That's, that's what creates the unity. And you can sense it almost immediately when you meet true believers from other parts of the world, other cultures, hey, even from Glasgow. <laughs> then you sense there is a bond of unity that isn't natural, supernatural. Because in each of us, my, what a transformation this makes to our disposition towards our fellow believers um, including those we find most awkward and difficult. We are bound together because not only do we share one Holy Spirit, but the one Holy Spirit that we share is the one Holy Spirit who was ministering on the life of the Lord Jesus and the one Holy Spirit who binds in love and unity together the Father and the Son. Now, what's all this supposed to lead to? Well it, leads to, well, it leads to a massive love-in, doesn't it? But Jesus isn't just interested in massive love-ins. He's interested in the impact this is going to make on the world. He's saying, I want there to be this unity so that through this fellowship of people, the world may come to believe that you sent me to be the Savior. Now, why would the world come to believe in Jesus as the Savior because of this phenomenon in the fellowship of the church? Answer is because it's not natural. It's supernatural. It's not like anything else. The people who used to meet briefly, if they ever did meet in this building, knew absolutely nothing of this kind of unity, this fellowship. But you see, when unbelievers come into a living fellowship of God's people, they, they don't have the language or the categories to explain what they experience, but they experience something they have never experienced anywhere else in the world. And if they seek, they will find the only explanation for it is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants in the here and now. We used to live in Dallas, not Dallas in the north of Scotland, but Dallas in Texas. And when we lived there, the, the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out. And there was, 
a pastor of a mega, mega, mega church of endless thousands of people was in the local newspaper saying, this movie is the greatest evangelistic tool God has ever given to the church. And I remember thinking when I read the newspaper, I thought this man was the pastor of a church. Is his church not the greatest evangelistic instrument? Because that's what Jesus is saying here. And we, you know, in a way, this is our hope in Scotland, isn't it? That the people down the street, if we're a young couple raising family, or if we're older people in a marriage that has been stable, or if we're a living family that we can invite people to come and see, as the Lord Jesus, you remember, said to Andrew and his friend earlier on in the gospel, just come and see. Then frequently, even if they think they hate what Christians believe, they realize there is no natural explanation for this kind of fellowship and love. Because this is real family. This is real family. And that's what our Lord is wanting. It's not, it's not just that he's praying about it. This is actually what he wants. And you'll notice the reason he wants it is because he wants his glory to be in the church. Now, I don't know if anyone actually understands what Jesus is saying here. Because we know that God does not give his glory to any other. He jealously reserves it for himself because only he deserves this glory. So how can Jesus be praying that this glory will be experienced by us? But that's just what he's talking about here. This love, the love that the Father has for the Son, the love that the Father has for us to give us to his Son, the love the Son has for us, that he was willing to die for us and now prays for us in heaven. That is the glory. That's why sometimes when we are together at the end of a, of a service, some of us at least may feel we are just bursting with a sense of, this was glorious. And indeed, that's exactly what Jesus is praying about for the here and now. But he's also, you notice in verse 24, praying about the there and then. The end story, the end game for Grace Church in Leith is not here on earth. The end game is there in heaven. And Jesus is praying, Father, this is what I want. I desire, verse 24, that they also, whom you have given me, that's the language again, I want them to be with me where I am to see my glory that you gave me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. Now, this glory is so important to Jesus. He's been praying about it for himself. And now he's praying that you will be there. Why does he want you to be there? Why does he want Grace Church to be there? Let me give you seven reasons 
Breathe carefully, it will take me no more than a minute. Reason number one, he wants you to see him in his glory because you have seen him in his humiliation. If you're a Christian living in this world, you have seen Jesus humiliated, perhaps almost every single day. Second, he wants you to see who he really is. You've never seen that. You've seen glimpses of it, but he wants you to see who he really is. Third, he wants you to see how much he is loved by his Father. Fourth, he wants you to know how much you are loved by his Father. Five, he wants you to know how much you are loved by him, that he would invite you to see his glory. Sixth, he wants you to see his glory, because then at last you will see, as you've never done before, that it was all absolutely worth it. And if there is a moment of regret, the moment of regret will be, Lord, if I'd known it was this, I would have wanted to love you more and do so much better for you. And seventh, He wants you to be with him to see his glory because he wants you. That's it. He wants you. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that we've got this great prayer of Jesus in John 17, but in John's gospel, we don't have the briefer prayer that he prayed certainly within an hour of this prayer ending, when he prayed, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. Let it pass from me. These two stark petitions, in a way, the greatest petitions the Lord Jesus ever uttered. Father, I want them to see me in my glory. Father, please, if it's possible, Take this cup away from me. My natural will is not to drink it and sense that I'm being separated from the Father whose face I've looked on from all eternity. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And you see, the wonder is that these two prayers explain each other, don't they? It's because he prayed, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want, that he was able to pray, Father, this is what I want. But to be able to pray, this is what I want, was so costly that he would have to drink the cup that he could never have naturally wanted to drink. And all because we mean so much to him, because we've been given to him by his Father. And all this would be well and good were it not for the fact that it's almost 2,000 years ago that it happened. But we remember Hebrews 13.8, don't we? That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And that doesn't mean just a shorthand way of saying Jesus is eternal. 
What that means is that the way Jesus was yesterday in what the letter to the Hebrews calls the days of his flesh, this day, in this prayer, he is the same today. Unless there be any doubt in any of our minds, he will be like that absolutely forever. So friends, we have much reason to be thankful for the way in which these various links in the chain have brought us together here at Grace Church. And I guess for some of us, um, it may be even more important to know that those chains go right the way back into the hands of his father. And his father has said to our Lord Jesus, his son, son, there's the chain. Hold on to them and save them. Bring them home. And when we have a sense of that, then surely we can go out into the world believing that we have the best news the world has ever heard or never heard and be links in the chain that will bring others, perhaps through the beauty of our fellowship, to know and trust our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, may that be so for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the grace and graciousness of our Lord Jesus. We love him so much. He is everything to us because everything else we have, we hold only because we hold on to him. And we pray as we give you thanks for the providences you have shown in bringing us together in this place and keeping us together and guarding the church through the ups and downs and through all the challenges. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would also fix our gaze upon this amazing purpose and love that the Lord Jesus has for us. And as your word seeps into the deep and dark recesses of our lives where we have felt unloved or misunderstood, we pray that we may be drawn into the loving light of our Lord Jesus and be given this new sense of amazing dignity because we are those that you, our Father, gave to your Son and to whom together you have given the Holy Spirit that we might be one just the way you and your Son are one in love and tonight one in glory. So keep us, we pray. Show your glory among us that outsiders may catch a glimpse of it and seek it in Jesus Christ and show your grace to all of us in our different situations and conditions that we may love you and love one another dearly in return. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.